Heavenly Father, you are the light, and there is no darkness in you. Darkness will never overcome you. We hear this, and yet we don't fully understand. We fall prey to the darkness. We see the world crumbling around us and find it difficult to have hope. We have set up expectations that the world can be better for us. We think the right politician can make it better. We think working hard can make it better. We think too highly of ourselves or have too high of expectations of others. And we think we have the power to be God, to control what we aren't made to have control over. And we fall to despair when we realize no government, no success, no distraction will make the world the way it should be. Which is why it's so important for us to know that we need to hope in you. Though there is despair, you promise a future of peace and restoration. When we feel overcome by our circumstances, you remind us that we would experience suffering and that this is a light momentary affliction that pales in comparison to eternity with you as Lord. Help us to live in this weighty truth presently, that you are holy king who is willing, able, and committed to rule your kingdom. Help us to remember that there is a war going on with the kingdom of darkness and that you will fully overcome it in your timing. Restore our hope in you. Build us up to reflect your light in this dark world. Correct us where our hope has been in falsities. Will our minds be renewed by the gospel truth? Build our courage to stand firm in the faith, to continue the walk with endurance, to grow in our love for you and our brothers and sisters and our enemies. We ask for these things because, Jesus, you are worthy. May we put our hope in you, the one deserving of all glory. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. Why don't you grab your Bibles and you can open up to Mark 13. We're continuing in a mini-series of application based on the truths that we've learned in Mark 13 this morning. And so if you're joining us for the first time in this mini-series, you can go back and re-listen to the other teachings that we've gone through in Mark 13 and last week as we introduced this mini-series. A few years ago, we started recommending a tool for parents to use in discipling their children in good theology. It's called the New City Catechism. How many of you use that? Anybody in here? Yeah, a few? Okay, good. Uh, The two ideas that act as bookends of that catechism are these two questions. First, what is our only hope in life and death? And then lastly, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? I don't think it's a coincidence that the first and 52nd questions of this tool that teaches the core of our faith hold in them the core topic of hope. Hope is at the center of Christian faith, is it not? But as with many words in our English language, this word hope often is interpreted or misapplied in many different ways. And it can be seen as something like maybe a gamble or maybe a desire. 
And for example, we might say right now, I hope that the chaos around us might calm down soon, right? That's simply a desire, though. That's not a hope. The word hope is used throughout the Bible in a stronger way than just a desire. The Hebrew word can be attached to the idea of awaiting something that you know is going to happen. And similarly, the Greek word can be thought of as having a confident expectation. Everybody say confident expectation. It's not spurious or weak in its possibility. One can wait on what is hoped for because they have confident expectation that it will indeed happen. There's a knowledge there. Hoping then is actually just played out in patience. This is why hope was such a powerful tool for the Christians of the first century that received the original writings that we hold as the New Testament. For, uh, from the mid-60s, when the New Testament started to be kind of created and written down, from the mid-60s of the first century, there was a, a large fire that destroyed much of Rome. And Nero, the Caesar at the time, he blamed it on the Christians. They were the scapegoat. And they began to be persecuted and martyred in horrific fashion. This meek new sect of, Jew, of Jews, mostly Jews, some Gentiles, that uh, stated that the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth would have little around them in evidence, so to speak, of hope as we define it nowadays. And then as the decade wore on, we got to 70 AD, a time when there was the invasion of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Hebrew temple, the dispersion of all the Jews across the world, and many of the events that we believe are talked about in Mark 13, as we've been discussing. You see, Christians were a small group, <clears throat> and as we discussed last time, they were made up mainly of the lower social strata of society. They had very little, if any, political clout, no army, no way to gain power or to wield it. All the power lay in the hands of those around them who wanted to destroy them. And this is why, as we looked at last week, the New Testament writers often wanted to infuse the New Testament believers with courage in the midst of chaos. And they did so with the tool of eschatology, the study of last things. Eschatology was then mixed with this call to endure and be patient for that which they were awaiting. You see, in their day, all they saw around them was reasons to not believe, reasons to not have hope. Does that sound familiar at all as you look around at what's going on in the world right now? Anybody see what happened in Portland last night? A lot of people not making peace. That's what happened in Portland last night. Over and over again, <clears throat> the New Testament writers, like Paul, Peter, James, John the Revelator, and the author of Hebrews preached and proclaimed hope through eschatological language. The definition of hope as a confident expectation of God's carrying out of his plan is everywhere in Scripture and even in our text from Mark 13. Take a look at Mark 13 with me for a moment, and let's take a look at a few of the different verses that we see hope. It's not, the word hope isn't there, but it's behind. It's the undergirding of these verses. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This doesn't sound like good news. It doesn't sound like something to hope in. But then he says, these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. You see, birth pangs give confident expectation that something new and wonderful is coming. In this language, it's describing the new age where Christ fully rules and reigns amidst his people and in a restored creation. 
Mark 13, 13, take a look at that. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. How many of you enjoy being hated? Anyone in here? No, I, I would hope not, right? None of us enjoy being hated, but then he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, the reality is, is in the 21st century, we go, there's no hope in that. That sounds terrible because we have a misunderstanding of hope. Jesus was saying, it's going to be terrible. And you still have that confident expectation that there will be salvation at the end of it. Take a look at uh, verse 23 there. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Another idea of the confident expectation that is to come. Jesus is saying, you'll know these things happen. They're going to happen. We can be confident. Just as confident as we can be of the suffering, we're going to be confident of the salvation that is to come. Look at verses 30 and 31. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Confident expectation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His promises, as we just sang a moment ago, his promises stand and will stand. All of this speaks to a confident expectation of what is to come. The full reign of Christ over his kingdom and a restored creation. Now, church, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this definition of hope this morning. Does anybody else feel that way? Confident expectation of Christ's rule and reign. In my earthly human sight, I look around at this broken world over the last six to seven months, and I cry as if standing in the first century, Lord, how do I have hope when all these things are going on around me? All I see is anger and hatred and bitterness and violence. What do I do, Lord? How do I see hope? How do I have hope when people that proclaim to be followers of the God of love within the church treat each other so terribly and refuse to reconcile? How do I have hope when people that supposedly search for truth in God's word are so easily misled by voices in the secular world? I found myself, brothers and sisters, over the last six months, and especially over the last couple months, just on my knees crying out, God, how do I have hope in the midst of this? And so I'm preaching to myself this morning just as much as I'm preaching to you. Have any of you joined me in that place over the last six months? Are there any of you that feel that same way? How do we have hope in the midst of this? Well, the hearers of Mark 13 would, I suspect, have had a similar question. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, death, persecution, but it'll be okay. Lord, what are you talking about? This all sounds horrific and terrible. How are we supposed to have hope in the midst of all the despair this will bring? But this, dear brothers and sisters, is exactly the point that the early church fathers proclaimed because of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5, 1 through 5, for example. And this was sent in the midst of persecution. This was sent to the Christians we just talked about that were struggling and suffering. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Dear friends, this was not sent to a, a bunch of Christians kicking back in their barca loungers, drinking a beer. This was sent to Christians who were enduring horrific suffering. And they were called to have hope. How can Jesus ask us to have hope in the midst of despair and suffering? 
Well, that's the question I wish to tackle this morning. You can write this down as the, uh, the name of this sermon, the, the title of this sermon, How to Have Hope in the Midst of Despair. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at all the application of what we've learned in Mark 13. And as we try to apply the call to be the kingdom of God amidst chaos, this is going to be core to who we are as the citizens of the kingdom of God. Because for us to fulfill our call to be the inaugurated kingdom of God on earth, we must be people of hope. We must be people of hope. First, though, this morning, I want to look at the reality of the despair that's all around us. I want to paint the black background so that we can see the light shining through. And in doing so, I think the first truth that we're going to have to deal with this morning is this. Life feels hopeless because our false hopes have been exposed as fleeting. Life feels hopeless because our false hopes have been exposed as fleeting. And this speaks to even the good hopes, guys. I I talked last service, I'll do it again, about how the fact that I have hope in good things. And yet, those good things, when death separates me and you and the world, they're fleeting. All the good things in this life, we can enjoy them for a moment, but they'll be fleeting if they're not grounded in the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. Many of you may be too young to remember, but in the 80s and 90s, there was a rise of a group branded the religious right that was heavily involved in politics and hoped to influence government in such a way that it became conservatively led. Over the years, it has very much influenced politics and is largely credited with putting us in the current place that we sit with the current administration. It also led to the largest quote-unquote Christian university in the world with over 100,000 students, either online or in person, in a place called Liberty University in Virginia. That school, up until this week, was led by Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of one of the original religious right leaders, Jerry Falwell Sr. At the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, much of the evangelical hope in America was based on this idea of the religious right. But then last week, after it came out that Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife were involved in some blatant sin, an editorial was published entitled, quote, Black Monday for the Religious Right, end quote. Let me read you a portion of it. The eventual resignation of former Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. was not the only blow sustained by the sagging structure of the religious right in the 24 hours from Sunday evening through Monday night. The other was the movement's total omission from President Trump's second-term priorities. Right around the time Falwell gave a lurid tale of infidelity and blackmail to the Washington Examiner in an apparent attempt to set the narrative before an even more sordid Reuters report was published, the Trump campaign released its 50-point list of agenda items. As conservative commentators quickly noticed, there were some key exclusions, like abortion and religious liberty and the Supreme Court, and the Constitution itself. Words that don't appear in Trump's list include faith, prayer, limited, judges, judiciary, life, liberty, freedom. In short, everything that was supposed to justify evangelical support for Trump has been dumped. End quote. Now, before you think that I'm cheering for the other guy, I'm not. 
Dear friends, there is no solution in politics. For anyone that has put their hope in bringing the kingdom of God to bear through our government, this is really horrible news. For anyone that put their hope in conservative politics or in quote-unquote Christian higher education to solve the world's ills, this is really horrible news. But it's not shocking to God. Why? What does the Bible say about putting our hope in powerful people? This is from Psalm 146, 3 through 5. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. This is Psalm 33, 17 through 19 that we read earlier. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Notice what the psalmist said is the solution, hope in Yahweh. But we're going to get to that in a moment. For a handful of years now, I have used a phrase in counseling and discipleship that, that I think summarizes why we end up having this despair in the midst of the chaos we're describing. You can write this down. This is not a biblical reference. Okay? It's based on biblical truth, but this is a Hans reference, and you can write it down if you want, but I found it very useful over the years. Conflict comes from misaligned, unspoken expectations. Conflict comes from misaligned, unspoken expectations. This could be conflict between friends, spouses, political parties, and even internal conflict, like despair. You see, when we build up an expectation and put our confidence in it, when it does not come to pass as we thought, we find ourselves with internal conflict, which can be labeled despair or even depression. One of the major defining characteristics of depression is what's called despondency, or the loss of hope or courage for the future. The very things that the New Testament writers were trying to instill in the early believers and in us, hope and courage for the future. But when we feel as though we've lost our confident expectation, we become despondent and there is conflict within us, and maybe even toward God or his people. From my perspective, this is happening in a big way across the world and in the United States. This is a cause of a lot of the rioting that's going on. But I see it happening within the church in a big way as well, and this is sad to me. So it led me to ask the question, why are we in the church so despondent? This was a question that was asked in the Bible as well. In Psalm 42 and 43, this was asked three different times. This is from Psalm 42.5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Again, notice the solution, but we'll get to that in a moment. You see, we're very simple creatures, us humans. When God created mankind, he built into us certain needs. The need for provision of food and water and shelter. The need for relationship and all that comes with it in terms of being loved and valued and cared for. To be intimately close with other people made in the image of God. There's the desire to be safe from trauma and harm. And these and many other needs are not bad. They're actually good and God-given and God-glorifying. And they are, in part, how we reflect the image of God, the image of our creator God of Shalom. The problem arises when we try and meet those needs in ways that are dysfunctional, 
weren't intended for us, and they set us up as God, lawgiver, and judge. As the one who knows right and wrong, good and evil. Not God. He, he, yeah, I know he says this about what I'm about to do, but I say this. And the fulfilling of these needs become ends in and of themselves. Guys, this is the core of all sin. Rather than the fulfillment of our mission to reflect and image the wonderful creator. When we make the fulfillment of these needs ends in and of themselves, we create what are called idols or gods made in our own image, the image of our own desires. Our whole life becomes driven to worship these idols, in effect, to worship ourselves in ultimate selfishness. As ultimate judge and God in our own lives, we create these expectations as if they were canon law, and then we move forward holding the true God and all those around us in line with these unspoken and usually misaligned expectations. Guys, that's what's happening in Portland every night. Let me list out some of the more prominent false expectations that I've seen within the church, though. And what I want you to do as you read through these is write down the ones that the Holy Spirit gives you some conviction that might be in your own life. Let me just walk through them here. These are prominent false expectations I've seen in the church over my time in the church. First, if God is good, then bad things will not happen in my life. Now, what's funny about this one is everybody always laughs at this one, but guys, this is so much of evangel evangelicalism, it's not even funny. If God is good, then he's going to make my life good. This is the core of the faux prosperity gospel that is thrown out in so many churches. I even see it in some of my teaching and some of my walk. So it's not just them, it's all of us, and we have to bring it into submission to Christ. Secondly, maybe not about God's goodness, but if I am moral enough and good enough, then God will make my life without discomfort. This is another view of the faux prosperity gospel. Third, if I am a Christian, well, my heart has changed so I can follow my heart. I hear this in young people a lot. Well, I know that what I'm about to do, the word says that it's not the greatest thing to do, but I'm a Christian now, and I really trust that I have a peace about this. Uh-oh, run the other way. Amen. Number four, Christianity should be easy. This comes from people who quite honestly never read their Bible, ever. <laughs> I should always want to do what God desires, and if I don't, then it's the fault of others. Might be God, might be my pastor or church leadership, or maybe those I go to church with. If Christianity's hard, somebody's at fault. Number five, if I feel negatively or my walk is in disrepair, someone else or something else must be at fault because I have no control over my feelings. Number six, God's grace means that he will alter the laws of righteousness and wickedness to suit my preferences and experience and those I love. Guys, this is why things that have been founded in Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years, you have random moms and dads who are like, oh, I'm going to change my view of Christianity because my son or daughter, well, they're changing their opinion. Number seven, good Christians will never have conflict. So when conflict comes, something must be wrong. Number eight, this is the one that I've heard a lot lately. Apathetic and half-hearted Christians endure. In other words, I'm fine in my apathy and my half-heartedness. I'm still going to make it. The word says far different. Yeah. 
Dear friends, I give you these because these false expectations are often at the core of our despondency, our despair, and our depression. Some are simply mistaken. Others are chosen sin. How we can tell if we've bought into these false expectations is actually pretty simple. When we have lost all confident expectation in the future of God's kingdom, we've bought into them. When our feelings overrule the truth that we know from the word of God, we've bought into them. When we find ourselves expressing wrath and rage as if we were the singular judge of right and wrong, we've bought into them. Now, this is not to say that we can't be sad or experience depression, because these things do happen. You see them all throughout the Psalms. But the question is, when we do, what is it? Is it us becoming judge of right and wrong, or is it the Lord giving us a gracious knock on the heart to say something needs to be adjusted? Overall, when we feel like our kingdom is crumbling and we do not rejoice that God's kingdom is being built and coming, the solution then is to realize that the true hope is only found in the kingdom of God and its overflow. True hope is only found in the kingdom of God and its overflow. With this refined definition of hope as confident expectation in the future, we can then start to work on the brain and heart work that we need to do on a very regular basis to set our hope in the right place. And why is it that we each individually need to do it? Well, go back and listen to last week. Can you control anything outside of you or anyone outside of you? Let me ask that again. Can you control anything outside of you or anyone outside of you? What can you control? Yourself. And so this isn't about Uncle Bob or Auntie Jane or those rioters there or this, this politician here. This is about us. What can we do to reset our hope? Well, true hope is only found in the kingdom of God and its overflow. First, we need to look at the character of the king. Look at the character of the king. You see, the best predictor of future behavior is previous behavior, especially for the one being that is unchangeable, immutable, God himself. So how can we know what the future is full of? And how can we know that it's full of hope? Well, we can look at his character, and we can look at how that character has worked over time in the history of his word. Let's go and read about his character in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This is Moses standing before the Lord, and it says, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, Let's pause there. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's him calling, by the way. Just kidding. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Notice that number, thousands, because it's going to be compared to something else here. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Can I get an amen? amen. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Can I get an amen there? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Thousands in love, third and fourth generation in justice. You see, we can trust that God is good, undeniably good, no matter what's going on. That he is love and grace and mercy. And if there is a way that God can love you, dear friend, he will. And that love even meets up with his judgment. That's why there's two pieces to this. True love does not have room for sin, dear friends. 
And so it works to remove brokenness and instead cause righteousness, holiness, reconciliation to dwell. Love without justice is sentimentality and it is destructive to the person you think you're loving. Justice without love is abusive and not really justice at all. We'll talk a lot about this in the upcoming weeks when we talk about obedience in the kingdom. Well, because this is God's character, we can then look at an over, the overarching narrative of his plan for mankind and recognize that when things seem bleak and horrible to us, his overall plan of redemption is exactly where he wants it. Do you guys realize that right now we look at the news and we go, God, where are you? He looks at the news and he goes, got him right where I want him. My redemption and love and compassion is about to become fulfilled. When, Lord, when? Well, for me, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So, pretty soon. You see, we might lament it. We might say, God, we don't see it, but recognize that we follow the God whose highest point of victory was what seemed to humanity as his greatest defeat at the crucifixion of Calvary. And this is why Job is able to say in Job 13, 15 through 16, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face and this will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. No matter what happens, we are to hope in him. Why? Because he's the source of all good. And this is where God gives us the tool of lament when it doesn't feel like that to us as humans. That's what he says there. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This is lament. We lament and cry out to God in sadness when life is broken because we know he is good and yet the world and even the church is far from him and broken. When we don't get it and yet we have to accept the reality of it, we are to cry out and lament. Lament is our cry to God for him to finish his work and bring heaven and earth back to one. So we hope in his character. We see by his word how it's played out over history. But then not only do we hope in his character, but we hope in the eventual restoration of his kingdom. We have confident expectation in that. The eventual restoration of his kingdom. The resurrection and the reign to come. Move with me in your Bible to Romans 8, 18. Take a look there, Romans 8, 18. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. Again, Paul writing to a church that's in the middle of the Roman Empire and persecution and martyrdom. Take a look at what he says. And he could be writing it to 2020 Christians just as much as first century Christians. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in confident expectation and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, we don't just guess, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. We wait eagerly. See that confident expectation? For adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this confident expectation, this hope, we were saved. 
Guys, if you got sold a false bill of goods that you're saved so that you can have a happy life, so that people can like you, so that life can be comfortable and easy, you were sold a lie. That is not the gospel. It's in the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the gospel, the suffering that Jesus Christ underwent for your sin and mine, and the suffering that we will undergo as we fulfill his crucifixion, as we walk with him in that crucifixion, being justified by his grace, and will one day resurrect with him. That is the hope we were saved in. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This isn't the hope of, gee, I really hope it'll happen. Gosh, I'm keeping one foot in the world just in case it doesn't. Oh, man, I desire. No, this is I wait with confident expectation. It's simply a matter of time. That's how we stand as Christians. Notice the language Paul uses that is similar to Jesus in Mark 13. The whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jesus talked about the beginnings of birth pangs, and these pains and sufferings are evidence that a greater reality will be coming. That reality is the revealing of the sons of God. The setting free of creation from bondage to corruption. The fullness of adoption as children into the family of God that is currently acting as our imperfect foster home. For in this hope we were saved. Not a hope that this life would be peachy or comfortable, but in the hope of what is to come at the resurrection and the reign of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And we are to wait for this confident expectation with patience. This should be part of our identity. I want you to see the identity of Paul as he writes to his, his friend Titus in Titus 1, 1 through 3. It says this, Paul, a servant of God. This is the greeting. This is the start of the letter, right? Not just dear sir or madam. Look at what he says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, and that's not a hope, that's just a desire, that's confident expectation of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior. This is our identity. Because you see, if our option isn't confident expectation of eternal life, then the Bible says you have one other choice. And that choice is found in Hebrews 10, 26, 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Brothers and sisters, you only have one of two options. You have the option of confident expectation in eternal life and the compassion of Christ, or you have fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire. This is why one of the many verses as to why I don't believe in annihilationism, that there will be eternal contempt for those who choose not to step into the kingdom of Christ. Death will come to every one of us in one way or another, dear friend. It will come to everyone who's raging on the news. It will come to every politician, every person in supposed power. When you and I die, will we have a confident expectation, a hope of eternal life with your Savior and King, or a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire? 
Brothers and sisters, especially those of you who are younger in here, you don't get to just dismiss this idea because it doesn't sound cool. You have to make a choice. And so I would call those of you who are not following Jesus to step into following Jesus wholeheartedly because those who are apathetic will not endure. Those who are Christ's will have a confident expectation of eternal life, restored creation, and adoption as sons and daughters. And we know that we are his because of the already current reality of his reign amongst his people. Do you guys realize you are one of the pieces of evidence to me that Christ is real, that he died, that he resurrected, and that he reigns? Because when you evidence the fruit of the Spirit, when you show what it is to walk in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, when you show yourselves as ministers of reconciliation, For all of us, it should be a glimpse of that kingdom that we will one day know in fullness. Recognize that you are not doing this alone. Other people count on you in your walk and in your passion for Jesus Christ. We must recognize that we're not running this race ourselves, but together. And it's our mutually agreed duty to give one another courage as we each push forward in rugged endurance of faith. And in so doing, we point one another's eyes towards the truly confident expectation of Christ's return, even in the midst of suffering. Dear brothers and sisters, we must place our hope in God, his character, as evidenced in his written word and as evidenced in his manifest word in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who died in our place, who resurrected in victory and sits enthroned as the Son of God over his inaugurated kingdom. If we can put our hope in that, then in our current and future suffering, whatever it might be, we will be able to meet it with courage and with the confident expectation that God is good and his goodness will be known the world over. If we can do that, we're going to be able to sound like our brother Jeremiah. Why don't you turn with me to Lamentations You can go to the prophets in your Bible in the Old Testament and go to uh, Jeremiah. If you go to Isaiah, you go a little bit right to Jeremiah and then to Lamentations. If you've gone to Ezekiel, you've gone too far. We're going to look at Lamentations 3, 16. Lamentations right after Jeremiah 3, 16. And hear his words. And this, I believe, is where we are to be in both lament and recognition of the hope and confident expectation we have in God. Lamentations 3, starting in 16, going through 33, it says this, He has made my teeth grind on gravel. That doesn't sound nice, does it? And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of Yahweh, the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. 
It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So today, rather than sitting in what we learned about last week as learned helplessness or victim mentalities, rather than sitting in self-righteous indignation and anger at all of them, quote-unquote, we need to operate within what we can control. And so we each this morning need to reset our hope on Christ and his kingdom reign. We need to reset our hope on Christ and his kingdom reign. How do we do that? Well, let me give you some very basic points here. First, you've got to identify your false hope. And this takes work. The first step is resetting, in resetting our hope to be in Christ and his kingdom is to search out and identify what we've been hoping in that is fleeting and false. Use the tools that we mentioned earlier, anger, despondency, where do I have no hope for the future? And look at what is causing despair or rage and then go one level deeper to figure out what false hope has failed you. And ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. As things have changed in COVID, it's been interesting to talk to different Christians and even examine my own heart that is so sinful and dark. As people get so angry about certain things and I get so angry about certain things, whether it be, oh, our sports season has changed or school's doing this or not as many people come to church and it's not as exciting and whatever it is, I realize that in, in the midst of COVID, I have put too much hope in too many people showing up at church and, and that means I must be a good pastor. Well, that's a fleeting false hope. The reality is, is that if we put our hope in these false fleeting things that are not of Christ, they will fail us and we'll find ourselves in despondency. I put my false hope in watching other Christians and going, oh, if they endure, then I can endure. And then when they fall or they walk away, I go, oh no, what's that mean for me? All the while forgetting, wait a minute, they weren't on the throne, Christ is. And so we need to figure out our false hopes. If you've been trying to find hope in a job, it may be because that job gives you a sense of value and meaning that can actually only be found in stepping into the mission of Christ in your identity as his child. You can still be at the same place doing the same job, but if your hope is in the job, you're going to be despondent. If your hope is in the mission of Christ at that job, now you're going to find your hope fulfilled. Amen. If you've been trying to find hope and stability and comfort, it's probably because you need control. You need to be a king or a queen. Maybe it's in finding entertainment that's going to keep you out of the despondency and being numb. Maybe that's where you're finding your hope. If you've been trying to find your hope in your health, it may be because you've conveniently forgotten that this life is but a breath and eternity is forever. It's when fullness of life comes. I really hope, I don't know if you guys saw on the news, I, I saw that uh, Cliff Robinson died yesterday, an ex-blazer. I really hope that he knew the Lord because whatever fanfare he got on this earth, it pales in comparison to standing before your creator, maker, and ultimate savior. I hope he was saved. What's your hope in? Is it in politics or government or sports or social justice without Christ? Is it in recreation? Is it in wealth? What's your confident expectation that has been exposed over the last six months is fleeting? If you don't know, you might need to ask those around you or sit and process with someone you trust in this church. And this week, 
I want to encourage you and press you to engage in a study of your own idols. Because then, once you figure those out, you can confess them and surrender them as false hopes. Meet up with someone in the body and confess that idol together to God. Pray for one another and check in on one another as to how it's going surrendering that hope. I find that we often try to do this between just us and God, and that is not bad. That's good. But there is power that comes with entering into the reality of our idols with another brother or sister who's engaged in the fight with us. Engage in the fight with someone else. Don't buy into this isolation that COVID has brought and quarantine has brought. Engage in fellowship with the body that you call home. Confess and surrender that false hope. Then third, you need to audit the voices in your life. Why is this important? Because the voices we listen to are the ones that give us what we should hope in. As we've been engaged in the common global mission of, quote, passing time until normal returns, end quote, I fear that we've all been lulled to sleep with media. A recent article on the Gospel Coalition bemoaned the fact that churches can no longer compete with media. They lifted up the fact that guys like me get maybe one hour, probably about 45 minutes, to speak into the lives of our flock, and then we let you all go into the 90-plus hours of media interaction per week on average. 90-plus per week on average due to increases of COVID that you're staring at a screen. Phone, computer, TV. Now, I know this is a slippery slope because I can immediately be called legalistic here, but this is just the truth, dear friends. You could have Charles Haddon Spurgeon standing before you preaching for an hour, and it would not counter the shouts of 90-plus hours of media. And I can't be the one that chooses that for you. If I start saying, get off of all social media, you're going to be like, that is the most legalistic pastor ever. What a jerk. But I'm begging of you, put down the media. Which voices are you listening to? Which voices are you giving your valuable time to? Are you fellowshipping with strangers on your phone who you call friends because you're connected to them? Or are you purposefully fellowshipping with God, his people, and his word? The voices we listen to through our TVs, our computers, our phones, the social media we follow, the news we take in, the talk radio we listen to, will outshout God's truth if we let it. And this week, I challenge you to figure out your own habits and ask yourself, how much am I letting God's truth, God's people, and God's hope be the primary voice that I hear? I want to challenge you to sit down and journal out the media you take in and see how many hours you are giving to the world and how many hours you are giving to the kingdom of God. And dear friends, I think this is why so many Christians are despondent right now is because we've stopped listening to the word of God. I'm reminded of something I read in the diary of Anne Frank, who many of you know lived in hiding while under Nazi occupation. The radio often served as a form of moral support for all those living under Nazi control and not just the Jews. As Anne describes, listen to this, she says, all over the country, people were trying to get hold of an old radio that they can hand over instead of their morale booster. It's true, as the reports from outside grow worse and worse, the radio, with its wondrous voice, helps us not to lose heart and to keep telling ourselves, cheer up, Keep your spirits high. 
things are bound to get better. What if Christians actually lived as though they felt the same way about their Bibles that Anne Frank did about the radio? What if we actually thought that way about our Bibles? Rather than picking up our phones to look at the news first thing in the morning or check Instagram, are we grabbing our Bibles? Dear brothers and sisters, hope is not found in Netflix, in Hulu, in YouTube, in Prime, in Disney+, in Instagram, in TikTok, in Facebook, in Xbox, in PS4. I could go on. Fox News, CNN. It's not found in those things. I beg of you to understand, hope is not found in those things. Don't confuse avoidance and coping with distraction with finding peace. These things may distract you for a moment, but they will never bring you hope and they will drag you farther away from Jesus Christ. This week, audit the voices in your life and see where God's word, prayer, and God's people fall in your priorities. And then, once you've audited the voices in your life and you've accepted the fact that, yeah, guess what? It's going to suck if Biden gets elected. Yeah, guess what? It's going to suck if Trump gets elected. Once you've accepted that, go vote for whoever you want and then reset your hope through the word of God and his people. Reset your hope. How do we do this? By flipping that audit of our time and energy on its head and investing in God, his word, and his people. It's so funny, as a basketball coach, I'd have somebody come up to me, and they'd go, I want to be a better, better basketball player, even my own kids. And I'll be like, great, go practice. And man, oh, six hours out on the basketball court, just pounding it, trying to get better, trying to get better. But as a pastor, people come to me, and they're like, Hans, how do I get more into Jesus and, and get my heart more to Jesus? Oh, man, you should go practice. Go read your word. Go fellowship with your people. Go pray. Oh, it just sounds like a lot. Can it just happen? All of us as, as coaches, we'd be like, you're, you're insane or stupid, I don't know which, to think that you'll become a better athlete if you don't put the time in. But then in Christianity, we're like, gosh, why don't I feel closer to Jesus and his people? I don't know. That's why. And if I sound sarcastic, I'm being sarcastic because it's getting frustrating as a pastor. I'm just telling you my heart. It's getting frustrating as a pastor to watch Christians Wonder who's going to get elected and if they're going to save the country. They're not. So go back to the word. How do we reset our hope through the word of God and his people? We look at the word. Look at what the word says about itself. Psalm 119, 43. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Look at Psalm 119, 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Look at Psalm 119, 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. Look at Psalm 147, verse 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Hope is found in God's word. It is found as you see God's character. It's found as you read his plan in history. It's found as you read the hope of his church. It's found as you read of what is ahead. Depression and despondency is a gracious gift to cause us to reset our hope on Christ. Depression and sadness is not bad. It's not sin in and of itself. It's a gracious gift to say, wait a minute, something is off in my heart, and then to turn back to the Lord. 
Look at how the psalmist used their despondency to point them back to God. Psalm 39.7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Psalm 42.5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation. Psalm 71.5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. And for those of us that are parents or grandparents in this church, listen to how important it is for us to model to our children where hope comes from. This is Psalm 78, 5 through 7. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It is so easy Dear friends, I'm a parent. I know how easy this is to think, oh, I've got to help my children see that there's hope in getting a good education. Yeah, that's good. That's not bad. But is it your ultimate hope? In having a good life and marrying a good spouse and having children and grandchildren in making memories and going on vacation, is this where we teach our children that our hope is? We may not even know we do that. But if all we're ever hoping for is more vacation or a better life, and our hope is not set in Jesus in front of our children, then guess what they'll pick up? False hopes. This week, I challenge you to go back and read over the verses that we've looked at today. Memorize some of them. Memorize Exodus 34, 16 through 17. Memorize Lamentations 3. Choose Scripture and memorize it. Because then, once you've reset your hope, guess what you can do? You can be ready to share that hope with the world. Notice Peter's description of how evangelism works in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Brothers and sisters, if we have bought into the lie that there is no hope, or the lie that hope is found in politics or guns or not wearing a mask or personal rights or whatever, we have nothing to share with the world and they have nothing that they want from us. This is why the church cannot evangelize, is because we put our hopes in other things and then try and put Jesus on top as the cherry on the Sunday. But if we're able to transcend above the bipartisan bickering and racial anger and earthly despair and meet people in their pain while also modeling that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he has established then the world will want to know what the heck is wrong with us and where is this incessant hope coming from? This is where evangelism can flourish. Finding hope in Christ and his kingdom that is here now and coming in fullness will give us encouragement. It will give us strength in the face of pain and grief. It will cause us to be a city on a hill drawing all who want to know where true hope lies. And we can tell them it lies in confident expectation that the character of our God who sent his son to die in our place and who reigns over our hearts and minds will one day set all of this nightmare to right and bring heaven and earth together again. And so, in the words of the Apostle Paul, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
you may abound in hope. Let's conclude this morning with our mutual belief by repeating the first and last questions as the answers out of the catechism. The italics is the question of the catechism and the answer is there in regular text. And so I'm going to read to you the question and ask you the question. And then we together with one voice in common belief are going to state the outcome there, the answer. Church, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? It reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. Dear church, do you believe that? Is this your common hope? Is this your common belief? Today, you need to wrestle with that. You need to give up those false hopes. You need to hold yourself to the fact that you are a citizen of the kingdom and press into his kingdom. Amen? Amen.